This week's parasha is very exciting. We start talking about a very important person who is, uh, you know, it's surprising that he doesn't even show up once in uh, Parashat Bereshit. I mean, in the book of Bereshit, right? So obviously I'm referring to Moses. Moses was the receiver of the Torah, <coughs> the one who taught us the Torah. In fact, the entire Torah is called Torah Moshe, the Torah of Moses. Not because it's his own wisdom, but because he was the translucent conduit through whom God communicated the Torah to us. So in this week's parasha, we learn about the terrible exile, the terrible slavery of the Jewish people. They were in the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh had this, uh, this conspiracy theory. One second here. Oh. Pharaoh had this conspiracy theory that if the Jews are allowed to, uh, to grow and be successful in the land of Egypt, at one point the Jews are just going to... Um, take over the land and, and send them out, send out the Egyptians. So he decided that he wants to subjugate them, get rid of them. And uh, he decided his plan was to enslave them, which he did very successfully, besides for one tribe, the tribe of Levi. And uh, when he heard from his astrologers that a savior would be born to the Jewish people who will redeem them from the land of Egypt, he went on a sadistic campaign to kill every Jewish boy. Not every Jewish child. The girls, it was fine. You can keep them alive because they specifically told him that it would be a boy that is going to save the Jewish people and lead them out of Egypt. And uh, so that brought the terrible decree of killing all the, all, all the male boys. They were thrown into the Nile River. Moses was born early. His mother hid him. And then when she couldn't hide him anymore, she put him into a little basket. And uh, she put him into a little basket on the Nile. And at that point, the astrologer saw that the Savior of the Jews is in the water. So that's it. Mission is accomplished. So when Pharaoh heard that, he, he took away the decree. So now the Jewish baby boys are safe. And the rest is history. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile. She saw the little basket. She stretched out her hand. And her hand stretched out many, many uh, feet or whatever. Um, it was a big miracle, and she retrieved the basket. She saw the baby inside, understood that it was a Jewish baby, and decided to adopt the child. And she was the one to name him Moshe, because of the word Mishiti, or that I pulled him out from the water. So that's the name of Moshe. The name Moses comes from an Egyptian girl, the Egyptian princess Batya. So we'll make a long story short. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's home, and at one point he became, uh, he was appointed to some important position. And at that point, he went down to his brethren. He saw that they were enslaved. And he saw one Egyptian who was, uh, who was beating a Jew mercilessly. And Moses looked here and there. He saw that there was no other Egyptians watching. And he uttered the name of God. And with the power of this name, he killed the Egyptian and he buried him. But word got out that Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses for what he did. And Moses ran away. This brings us to source number one in our class. Source number one, page three. Moses fled from Pharaoh and ended up in the land of Midian. Moses was sitting near the well. The sheik of Midian had seven daughters who came to draw water. As they were beginning to fill the troughs of water their and water their father's sheep, other shepherds came and tried to chase them away. Moses got up, 
and came to their aid and then watered their sheep. So let's give a little bit of context here. These seven girls, they're the daughters of Jethro, Yisroi. Yisroi was a religious leader. He was, the, the way he translates here is the sheik, Koyed Midian, the priest of Midian. There are different ways to understand it, either that he was um, a great religious leader or that he was just the leader of the country. Be it as it may, Yisro at one point came to the realization that idolatry is false, and he embraced monotheism. As a result, he was shunned by the people, and therefore no one wanted to work for him as a shepherd. So his daughters are the ones that had to take his sheep out to pasture. They would have to take the sheep to get water. And because he was a persona non grata for rejecting idols, for rejecting uh, uh, the, the heathen ways, so the shepherds every single day would come and harass the girls, to push them away from the watering wells. And today was no different. When Moses saw the harassment, he stood up and he protected them. He sent the other shepherds away and he took care of the sheep. <clears throat> As a result, the girls came home much earlier because they didn't have to deal with all the harassment to wait until all the other shepherds watered their sheep. When they came to their patriarch, Reuel, who's really Jethro, he asked them, how did you get to come home so early today? So they said, an Egyptian man rescued us from some shepherds. They replied, he also drew water for us and watered our sheep. There was this Egyptian guy, he took care of us. And where is he now? He asked his daughters, why did you abandon the stranger? Call him and let him have something to eat. So I guess they tracked him down, they invited him over. Moses decided to live with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Tzipora as a wife. Right? Typical story from the shtetl. Right? The nice Jewish boy comes home. And he has some dinner, and uh, somehow it becomes the son-in-law, right? Well, that's that's what happened with Moses. Okay, so that's the story. That's the story of Moshe's marriage. Now, the Rebbe is going to, it, it, this is a fascinating talk, actually, uh, which, again, was not said on the parasha of Shemot. It was said, actually, um, on the yard site of the Rebbe's father. The Rebbe was quoting a Zohar, a teaching of the Zohar. So it's basically it's going to focus on a teaching of the Zohar connected to this uh, to this story. <clears throat> so if there's any part of this story that seems strange to you, what would it be? So there are a lot of strange parts to the story, but here the the. The Rebbe is going to focus on a seemingly insignificant detail and going to make a whole big deal out of it. When Moses was forced to flee, we're on page four. When Moses was forced to flee from Egypt to Midian, his first deed was to save Jethro's daughters from the harassment of the other shepherds when they came to water their sheep at the well. As they told their father, an Egyptian man rescued us. As a result, Jethro brought Moses home for a meal, hoping he would marry one of his daughters, and Moses married Zipporah. The Torah's description of the story raises a question. <clears throat> Granted, Jethro's daughters identified Moses as an Egyptian man because they didn't know his name or who he was, aside from the fact that he was Egyptian, because he was in Egyptian clothing. That's how they identified him. He's an Egyptian guy. But why is it necessary for the Torah to include that description if it has no real import in the story? To the contrary. For Moses, being called an Egyptian man is not a compliment. He had a much greater pedigree. 
He was the son of Amram, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and an important spiritual personage of, personage of his own, uh, himself. He was an important, important, uh, important guy. Why then does the Torah find it necessary to record the entire description of Jethro's daughters, including the description of Moses as an Egyptian man, a title that is a slight more than a compliment? Why doesn't the Torah simply state, a man rescued us? This indicates that the description of Moses as an Egyptian is an integral part of the story. In other words, we're not here either to compliment him or to slight him. Identifying him as an Ish Mitzri, as a man from Egypt, that's important for us to appreciate and understand Moses. The Zohar explains, there in Egypt he was born, there he was raised, and there, and there he achieved his true greatness. The Zohar repeats itself, saying there three times to further emphasize, for further emphasis. It was essential that all three elements take place in Egypt. So the fact that Moses was born in Egypt is not a fluke, and it's not, uh, it's, it's not a detriment to Moses. You'll say all the other great leaders, Abraham, uh, not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Yosef uh, was not. So Abraham, so Isaac and Jacob were born in Israel. Yosef lived in Israel for a certain amount of time. Abraham lived in Israel, but Moses never lived in Israel. In fact, he was born where? In Egypt. Where was he raised? In Egypt. In the house of Pharaoh. Where did he become great? Specifically in Egypt. That's where he became the great Moses. What's the secret of Egypt here? In other words, when the Torah wants to teach us about the greatness of Moses' character, it emphasizes that his birth, upbringing, and greatness were all associated specifically with Egypt. <clears throat> All right. Rabbi. Yeah. Rabbi, I had a question. I'm sorry to interrupt the class, but it was interesting because I was thinking about what you said at the beginning that uh, Jethro, Ruel, he, you know, his daughters were getting the water and for the, for the animals because he was monotheistic and so he was persona non grata, right? Right. But yet the, uh, the women said to him, oh, we got back early because an Egyptian man helped us out. Now, aren't most Egyptians... I mean, I guess they weren't monotheistic. I was just curious about that. And yet he offered his daughter to marry. Yeah. Uh, so you're asking why he allowed his daughters to marry an Egyptian man if seemingly he was a monotheistic person and Egyptians were heathens? Yeah, I guess that's pretty much right. Right. So the idea is once Moses came to Jethro's home, that's when they found out more about it. In other words, Moses was not hiding his true character. They just never asked him his name, so he never told them. But he was dressed like an Egyptian because that, that's how he was dressed. And um, they never asked him his name or who he was. He just did his thing, and that was that. They went home. Once he came back, Jethro started to realize who this person was. That's why he offered his daughter Tzipora in marriage to, to Moses. He also realized it was a buyer's market. <laughs> Jethro had no one to marry off his daughters to. No one wanted to marry his daughters because it was persona non grata. When he saw that there was a man that stood up for them, see, he started to think also, I believe the Medrash tells us, perhaps it's in the Talmud as well, that they told him something very strange happened to him. This is what happened. He didn't have to draw the water. The water rose up towards him. 
just says, ah, I know people that that happens to. That happens to the Abrahamic families. He already had an indication that he wasn't just talking about a regular Egyptian person, which actually only emphasizes the point that we want to say here. The fact that he was Egyptian is not just not a compliment to Moses. It wasn't even a compliment to the situation. If he was truly an Egyptian man, Jethro wouldn't be interested in marrying off his daughter to an Egyptian person. So why does the Torah emphasize the fact that they told their father, Ish Mitzri, that it was an Egyptian man? From here, the Zohar tells us that the Torah is trying to tell us something. It's not just, it wasn't just a mistaken identity of the girls. It wasn't just the girls being sloppy in identifying their savior. On the contrary, the fact that he was called Ish Mitzri is actually an important detail for us to really appreciate who Moses is. Sounds good? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Okay, all righty. So, <clears throat> let's go to page six. To appreciate how Egypt was so integral to the birth and upbringing and greatness of Moses, we need to make the following preface about birth. But everyone thinks that birth is so exciting. It's happy. Yay! The truth is, it's not so happy. In fact, what does the baby do when it's born? Christ. Christ is upset. Why is he upset? So let's see a quote from the Talmud, source number two. Rabbi Samuel taught, to what is a fetus in its mother's womb comparable? To a folded notebook. Its head rests between its knees and its mouth is closed and its umbilicus is open. And it eats from what its mother eats and it drinks from what its mother drinks. And a candle is lit for it above its head and it gazes from one end of the world to the other. Now, that doesn't mean that there is a flame of fire uh, on top of the fetus. What it means is that the baby in the mother's womb has such spiritual clarity that it could see everything. It could see the truth of everything. Now, there are no days when a person is in a more blissful state than those days when he is a fetus in his mother's womb. And a fetus is taught the entire Torah while in the womb. And once the fetus emerges into the airspace of the world, an angel comes and slaps it on its mouth, causing it to forget the entire Torah. As it is stated, sin crouches at the entrance, which means when a person enters the world, he is immediately liable to sin due to his lost Torah knowledge. All right. So <clears throat> during pregnancy, during gestation, the child is in its happiest, most blissful time doesn't have a worry in the world, doesn't even have to open up its mouth in order to eat. It's eating automatically. And for entertainment, ooh, it's got the best entertainment possible. It's learning Torah, and it learns the entire Torah. Then by birth, it loses everything. It forgets all of the Torah. Now he has to relearn it again. So you say, Rabbi, what's the point? Why did it waste its time learning, learning Torah? The answer to that is it's a great question. Uh, one of the answers to that is because, you know, it's uh, it's comparable to the idea of, um, you know, putting the software into the hard the hardware. Once the software was there at one point, it's easier for it to come back. In other words, because the child was learning Torah in its mother's womb and it learned the entire Torah, therefore, when it comes out into the world, it's just relearning what it already what what, what it already knew. 
But if it wouldn't forget the Torah, then there would be no concept of free choice. So therefore, it's important for the child to learn the entire Torah, forget the entire Torah, and then relearn it in this world through its own efforts. Actually, I'm, I'm trying to give away the point that's going to come from, from the class. But anyway, so birth would seem to be something that's actually not so exciting, not so great. Let's see uh, on page seven. Just a moment. I think someone wants to... I'm sorry. All right. The Talmud states that a fetus in the womb eats from what its mother eats, drinks from what its mother drinks, and a candle is lit for it above its head and is taught the entire Torah. The baby has no worries, difficulties, or obstacles. Everything is provided for both physically and spiritually. That being the case, what is the significance of birth? Why does it generate so much excitement and so many good wishes? The new baby was perfectly comfortable in the womb, both physically and spiritually. Now as it enters the world, it immediately begins to cry and protest. The answer, despite having everything in the womb, being fed, taught, and everything provided for, the fetus is not an independent being. Everything has been provided ready-made. It has accomplished nothing on its own and definitely hasn't had the opportunity to work hard and invest effort in its own work and achievements. Clearly, being in that state is not the purpose of its creation. A Jew is created to, act, to be active and to fulfill a role and mission in the world. We thereby become a partner with God in creation. Our sages explain that God told the children of Jacob, just as I create worlds, so too your father creates worlds. In other words, Jacob took an active part in the constant recreation of the world according to God's will, illuminated with the light of Torah and mitzvot. When we come to this world, God created a beautiful world. There was one thing missing in this beautiful world, and that is that the world should acknowledge its creator. The world is dark. The world is clueless. Our job is to allow the world to connect with its creator. When we do this, it's like we are recreating the world together with God. We're bringing a whole new dimension to creation. And that is uniquely within our power. For the newborn baby, this only becomes possible upon being born there in the physical world. That is, sorry, <clears throat> that is when he gains the ability to function and conduct himself as an intellectual being and to fulfill his role and mission to influence and not be influenced by the world. The period of gestation in the womb is merely a temporary situation which needs to be undergone to be able to fulfill one's true purpose, to fulfill God's mission in the world. And true joy and fulfillment can only be experienced when a person is able to fulfill that mission. So now we can understand why birth is so exciting. Not because of an accomplishment that just happened, not because of something, not because the child is now more comfortable than he was before. The contrary, the child is actually now in more pain than he was before. But the idea is now the child is capable of fulfilling its purpose. Now that's very exciting. It was finally given the tools and the opportunity to fulfill its purpose. You know, I, I would compare this 
know, compare this to a, a child who wants to play a sport, right? So he joins the team. But just because you're on the team doesn't mean that you're actually going to play. So comes the time of the game, and his parents are in the stands. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, at the beginning of the game, their child is on the sidelines. And then, middle of the game, the coach sends the, child, sends the boy into the, into, the, into the field. The parents get up and they start cheering, yay! Why are you cheering? He didn't do anything yet. Until so now, he was on the sidelines. He wasn't, able to, he wasn't even able to play. Now that he's out in the field, now it's possible for him to play. Now he has a chance of making a touchdown. Now he has a chance of making an impact. That's why it's exciting. So when the child is born, the reason why we're so excited, the reason why there's so many well wishes, the reason why we make a party is because now the child was given a chance. Now the child has the ability to make a real impact. Now let's return to the Zohar's teaching about Moses. There he was born. The Zohar is saying that he was born specifically in Egypt. In other words, it was specifically Egypt which enabled the birth Upbringing and emergence of Moses. Wouldn't Moses be better off being born in Israel? Being raised in Israel? Achieving prominence in Israel? That's the Holy Land. A holy person is better served if he or she is in a holy place. But the Zohar says no. The greatness of Moses, his holiness, was only achievable specifically because he was born in Egypt. So Nebuchadnezzar says, at first glance, this seems untrue. Egypt was, after all, the very place that fought his birth. Pharaoh decreed that all newborn boys be thrown in the Nile, hoping to thereby kill Moses. The Egyptians obviously objected to his ultimate emergence as a leader. So what does the Zohar mean? Why is the Zohar giving credit to Egypt for the birth and emergence of Moses? <clears throat> So here's the deal. Now we go to Tanya. One of the most powerful messages of Tanya is contained in the chapter we're going to be reading now. It's actually one of those major um, you know, shifts in perspective that happen when you learn Tanya. So let, let's see how the Rebbe brings it in. The answer lies in Tanya's explanation regarding someone who experiences disturbing thoughts during prayer. So Tanya is a book it's, it's not a self-help book, but it's, it's a book that's, uh, that aims to guide a Jew in their service of God. Okay? So a Jew uh, is serving God. How so? Through learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, and prayer. Prayer is an integral part of divine service. One of the major issues that people suffer from during prayer is distraction. We're constantly distracted. Distracting thoughts. You know, a prayer, the shachari, the morning prayer can go on for about 40 minutes. If your prayer is only one minute long, fine. So you're able to focus for a minute. But 40 minutes to focus, that's, that's a miracle, right? So, uh, you know, everyone would have this problem. We'd start to pray, and then all of a sudden we'd start to think about business or about, uh, on a good day. On a good day, it was about business. Or other distracting things. And sometimes people will talk, would think about horrendous thoughts, things that you would never want to say out loud. And one of the things that would eat away at people is how is it possible that when I am praying, 
I put on my talus and my tefillin, and I'm, I'm standing in the synagogue. It's a holy place. And here of all places, that's where I start to get distracting thoughts. That's where all of these terrible ideas come into my head. What's wrong with me? Right? This, this is how everyone would come. The, the conclusion was that there's, there must be something wrong with me, something wrong with my soul, something wrong with my prayer. And with this, the person's prayer would implode just by the, the mere experience of having distracting thoughts during prayer. Comes the Alter Rebbe and turns the whole thing around. The whole thing. What's going on? Now I'll start off with a joke. There's once a guy. He comes to the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, my, my, my son went crazy. He says, why? So he spends a whole night dancing in the bar with the ladies. And he's eating pig. So the rabbi said, if you would tell me he's dancing with the pigs and eating ladies, then he's crazy. But right now, he's, he's, he's just being very normal. I mean, obviously, it's not the way a Jew should behave, but, uh, you know, he's just being normal. This is what the Alter Rebbe does to every single Jew with regard to distracting thoughts. Look, look at this. Uh, Tanya states that the person should ignore those thoughts and not be depressed by them. To the contrary, they should encourage him to focus better in his prayers. Now, what's this all about? So let's go to source number three. Even if lustful imaginings or other extraneous thoughts occur to him during his service of God, in Torah or in prayer with intention, he should pay them no attention but avert his mind from them immediately. But what about the fact that the, the, the fact that I can have lustful thoughts during prayer, that itself shows that I'm a terrible guy. The Altenib says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. On the contrary, he should draw fresh strength and intensify his determination with all this power to pray with concentration, with even greater joy and gladness. Why? Why should the distracting thoughts make you happy? In the realization that the foreign thought which occurred to him derives from the klipa of the left part of the heart, which wages war within the bainity against the divine soul within it. One of the things Alter Rebbe introduced to us, I believe in chapter 9 of Tanya, is that a person has two souls within him. He's got the divine soul, has the animal soul, and it's like these two voices that are constantly fighting with him. The fact that you have sinful thoughts, it's not your problem. On the contrary, that means you're normal, because that voice within you is meant to challenge you with sinful thoughts. So when you're standing in prayer, and all of a sudden you have these distracting thoughts that are coming to you, the problem is not with your prayer. In fact, Everything is working perfectly. That part within you, that voice within you that's meant to challenge you is doing its job. Why is it doing its job now? So the reason is because you're doing such a good job doing prayer. You're doing such a good job focusing on God. Now the other side has to do its job and try to distract you. One of the big issues that people have during prayer when they get distracting thoughts is, Ten minutes ago when I was eating breakfast, I wasn't thinking about these things. Twenty minutes ago when I was walking to shul, I wasn't either thinking about these things. And now when I'm in the shul and I'm davening, how I think about these things? How crazy. I must be crazy. And Altarabah says, no, no, no. When you're walking to shul, 
you know, the, the other side, you're not really engaging your mind in a mitzvah. True, your feet are doing a mitzvah, but your mind is not engaged in a mitzvah. So the animal soul is going to sleep. He doesn't have to work. When you were eating breakfast, on the contrary, eating breakfast, that's exactly what the animal soul wants you to do. He doesn't have to distract you from your breakfast. Eat your breakfast, enjoy it. But now that you're focusing your mind and your heart on prayer, you're doing the right thing. Oh, oh now he wakes up. Now he has to come and fight. Now he has to show that he is also, he has an opinion. This is to use an example, like a person who is praying with devotion. While facing him, there stands a wicked heathen who chats and speaks to him in order to confuse him. So I'm praying, I'm doing the right thing. There's another guy that's trying to distract me. That's how you have to view your thoughts. The distracting thoughts are the thoughts of another. They're not you. Surely the best advice in this case, so what do you do if a guy is standing in front of you while you're praying and he's chatting and chatting and talking, trying to distract you? Surely the best advice in this case would be to answer him neither good nor evil, but rather to act as though he were deaf without hearing and to comply with the verse, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you too become like him. So too, when foreign thoughts enter one's mind, he should answer nothing at all, nor should he engage in argument against the foreign thoughts, which means he should not occupy himself with mental discussions on the best strategy for countering the foreign thought. For he who wrestles with a filthy person is bound to become soiled himself. Instead, he should pretend not to know nor hear the foreign thoughts that occur to him, should dismiss them from his mind, and strengthen still more the power of his concentration. And the Tanya continues, we didn't bring it here, but Tanya continues, and then when you're going to say, why did God allow for this distracting thought? Because if you wouldn't be distracted, you would never be motivated to concentrate even more. The only way you get stronger is when you're challenged. And this is a fact. This is a fact in everything in life. Challenges strengthen us. If we, you know, go up against the challenge. If we allow ourselves to be drowned by the challenge, to be smothered by it, okay, you lost. But the, the, the existence, the, the fact that there is challenge, it's only there to make us stronger. Let's see how the Rebbe continues on page 10 in the middle. Had those disturbing thoughts not fallen to him, his prayers would have been ordinary. His prayer was greatly intensified specifically because he saw his evil inclination trying to disturb him. That called forth from within him much greater concentration and enthusiasm. Why is that the case? It is comparable to the idea of exercise. The body's muscles are not strengthened by being given constant rest. To the contrary, an arm or leg that does not move regularly will lose its function, right? When someone is, uh, God forbid, bedridden for a long time, they have to relearn how to walk. Why do they have to relearn? Your, your legs were, were resting. They, they should have all the energy in the world to walk. And the answer is no. The less they walk, the less they can walk. The muscles in our arms and legs are strengthened when they are put to use. The same is true of the rest of the body. Although the limb seems not to tire from seems to tire from exertion, it is clearly the only way for it to gain strength. So it's like this, this catch-22. The more you're going to walk, your feet are going to get wary and tired. That's the only way they get stronger. 
In recent generations, the medical field has finally recognized the truth that was stated in the Talmud many hundreds of years ago, that constant function and movement and constant training in any given matter will make the body healthier and stronger. So let's bring this all back to Moses. Why is it important for us to emphasize that Moses was born specifically in Egypt, specifically in a place that wanted to do everything that it could to stop him from ever being born? The birth of Moses, which basically means the birth of the salvation of the Jewish people, occurred specifically there in Egypt, a place that didn't reflect the Jewish people's character nor their mission in the world. When they nonetheless embraced the situation and fearlessly worked to transform that location into a dwelling place for godliness, they were born. They became an independent entity no longer reliant on outside support. This was followed by their upbringing, their growth and progression to achieve their true spiritual potential. Specifically, Egypt, the challenge of Egypt, is what turned the Jewish people into what they really could be. The Jewish people cannot go from the land of Israel straight to Sinai. They first had to go through the excruciating pain and challenge of Egypt, the slavery in Egypt, and only then were they ready to go to Sinai, to become a Jewish nation, to receive the Torah from God. Uh, many, many times the, the Egypt is called uh, like, like, the, like this, this, this oven, this furnace. Any type of metal that you, want to, uh, that you want to use, you have to refine it. You have to put it in a furnace. In the furnace, it's refined. And only then could you use the gold in order to make something beautiful. The same thing is with the Jewish people. True, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and their children, they were wonderful. But in order for them to be ready to receive the Torah, they had to go through this furnace called Egypt, the furnace of exile. Moses was not born in Israel. Moses was not born before the exile. Moses was born in the exile. Moses was born at one of the most dangerous times to ever be born. For a Jewish child to be born in Egypt, the worst time, was 80 years before they left Egypt, because that was the time that Pharaoh specifically made a decree that every Jewish boy is going to be thrown into the Nile. And specifically then, at the most bleak, the, most, the darkest moment of exile, that's when Moses was born. That's when, the, the, that's when the possibility for redemption happened. Why? Because our greatest achievements happen specifically from our greatest challenges. Page 12, this is the response to those who ask, if God wants us to study Torah and fulfill his commandments, why does he send us to Egypt? Not the physical location, Egypt, but all exiles are called Egypt, according to the Talmud. Why does he place us in a situation in which we experience obstacles in our observance of Judaism, obstacles which sometimes come from non-Jews and sometimes even from Jews? He should have placed us in paradise among angels fed us manna from heaven and water from the well of Miriam, surrounded us by clouds of glory that launder our clothing, allowing us to study Torah and observe the commandments with peace of mind. What do we need all of this Mishagas for? Why do we need all of these troubles? Why do we need all of these challenges? If God wants us to learn Torah and do mitzvahs, give us whatever we need. Then there's the opposite argument. A separate argument is voiced by those who live in free countries. If God placed us in a place with an abundance of material pleasures, we are obligated to embrace it all and indulge in everything that comes our way. 
right? So it's like these two opposite things. You'll always find an excuse not to learn Torah, not to do mitzvahs. One excuse is life is so hard. The other excuse is life is so easy. Life is so exciting. Life, there's so much to indulge in. I can't, I can't spend my time in Shul and Shabbos. I can't spend my time learning Torah. There's so much to achieve. There's so much to accomplish out there. There's so much to take pleasure from. The Zohar therefore teaches us that a Jew finds himself in Egypt for a very specific reason. There he is born, there he is raised, and there he achieves his true greatness. He is there to be born into his Jewish identity, to raise his Jewish identity, and to reach the full spiritual potential inherent in his Jewish identity. For this, he needs to be in Egypt and own his Egyptian surroundings. He's not there to acclimate himself to his environment. He's there to transform the environment into a place fit for a Jew. Don't be a thermometer, be a thermostat. What's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? The thermometer says, oh, it's 100 degrees outside, so I'm 100 degrees. It's 65 degrees, I'm 65 degrees, that's it. What's a thermostat? The thermostat sets the standard. It's going to be 70 degrees in here. It happens to be 58, we'll get it to 70. It happens to be 100, we'll bring it down to 70. We're going to make it comfortable here. The challenges of Egypt, which could be on two opposite sides of the spectrum. One, it could be like, you know, slavery, oppression. On the other hand, it could be the challenge of freedom. That itself is a challenge. You say, what, I'm going to waste, I'm going to spend my time literally turning doing mitzvahs when I have all of these opportunities of all of this entertainment and excitement and pleasure that I could that I can indulge in. The answer is, that's exactly the point. God didn't put you in these challenges so that you should acclimate yourself to these challenges, to, these, to this environment. He put you in an a foreign environment so that you should transform the environment, so that you should prove the strength of your character. And so that ultimately, you should be like a thermostat and change your entire surroundings as well. That's why the Torah says that when the girls described Moses to their father, they said he was an Ish Mitzri, he was an Egyptian man. This was all part of the process of him becoming the savior of the Jewish people, becoming their redeemer. It's not enough that he was the son of Amram, who was a great person in his own right. It's not, that it's not enough that he's a grandchild of Yaakov and Mitzvah and Amram, and the fact that he was such a smart person. No. He had to be an Egyptian. He had to be born in Egypt. Born at the worst possible time to be born. Because specifically in the darkest, hardest moments, that's when our strongest and our best and our brightest emerge. Moses channels this power to every single Jew. He is one of the seven shepherds of Israel who bring life and godliness to the entirety of the Jewish people, empowering us to transform our individual Egypt. When you look around and notice something that isn't as it should be, something that is unjust or unrighteous or something that contradicts Torah and mitzvot, fleeing to a different place is not the answer. Your job is there he was born. Take on the challenge and engage with the elements which you encounter and transform them to reflect the will of Torah, the true Torah, the Torah of life. This is in sync. I mean, it's it's so it's so uh, it's so typical of the Rebbe. You know, and many times people would write to the Rebbe leaders. They said, you know, we, we want to leave our community. We want to go to Israel and just sit and learn Torah in Israel. It's a holy land, right? The Rebbe would say, no, that that's not where you are going to achieve true greatness. True greatness will be achieved when you are going to stay in that country where you are, in that small Jewish community, and you are going to face the challenges 
of these tiny communities, of these assimilated communities, and you are going to do everything in your power to bring the knowledge of Torah, the beauty of mitzvot to them, that's where you're going to achieve your purpose in life, and you are going to achieve true greatness. That's where you're going to have true nachas, true joy from yourself. That's where you're going to see your true essence being revealed. And so this we learn from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Moses, the first, the first leader of the Jewish people, specifically because he was born in Egypt at the worst possible time. He went through the greatest challenges in Egypt because it was specifically those challenges that gave him the, the ability to be the Moses that he was. The same thing applies to us. Wow. There you have it. I do have, have I do have two questions. Yes. Um, um, every, everything resonates with me and makes sense, except I do have two questions from the early part about a fetus. Is there, according to everything that we were reading and that you were sharing, is this only true of a Jewish fetus 